Welcome to Jason and the Movie Nods. Uh, I'm Jason Sachs. And I'm Dominic Grace. I'm Eric Hoffman. And we are continuing our look at the films of the great Akira Kurosawa with two adaptations of high literary Russian works, The Lower Depths and The Idiot. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I was trying to imply anything, Dom. (laughs) Just the opposite. Who's the idiot here after all? Uh, I thought this was a really well, a pretty clear, obvious pairing where they resonated with each other in a, real, a bunch of different ways. Yeah. Uh, both adaptations, both uh, maybe a bit challenging for a viewer. Both in a, different ways, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, both bring up questions about how true an adaptation should be how much authorial intent there should be. Um, And both, I I felt I was missing a little bit of cultural context too, to really appreciate them completely. Yeah, I I was thinking, I mean, for both of them, especially because, I mean, one of the things that I found myself wondering was, so why change the temporal setting of the lower depths to like, you know, Edo, Japan, right? Um, And I'm assuming that there are historical cultural reasons there that he was exploiting, and I just don't know what they are. and I think I actually almost laughed out loud watching the idiot when we get to the scene about the flower symbolism. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, th- that flower symbolism doesn't mean anything in Japan anyway. That's, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I hear you. <laughs> Especially because in, in some ways, the idiot struck me as a far more American film than most of Kurosawa's films. It's definitely very melodramatic. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like a late forty. Well, I mean, given when it was made, this is not surprising. But it, it reminded me a lot of you know, um, the kind of thing you might find, you know, Betty Davis in Chewing the Scenery, or uh, or, or something like that. You know, those those late forties, early fifties soap opera melodrama kind of things. I mean, not not even a love triangle. What is it like a love heptangle or something in there? There's <laughs> yeah. at least at least four people involved in it. I think five if you count uh, Koyama, right? So yeah, yeah, but it's true that, that and I think there too, uh, probably missing how it's, it's specifically Japanese. Because uh, one of the things I was noticing was, you know, uh, the different characters and the different kind of clothing they were wearing. Some were wearing very traditional Japanese garb. Other were others looked like, well, like, uh, uh, what's her name? The, the, uh, the good girl uh, love interest. Looked like you know something out of like you know Ozzy and Harriet the first time I saw her right, um, Iako, um, and so there's that that kind of thing happening too, and I just I just can't parse it. I just don't know what what the uh, you know assumptions would be about that for for an audience versed in Japanese culture. Well, <clears throat> I will say, having some knowledge of Japanese literature, that during the Meiji and the Taisho periods, and in all the way up into the Showa period, uh, there were quite a few Western works of classics of Western literature that were translated into Japanese by Japanese authors. Yeah. Uh, and Dostoevsky was exceedingly popular among mm-hmm. Japanese audiences for whatever reason. It's just a shared sensibility. He translated well into Japanese. I don't know. There was something about Dostoevsky that was palatable to Japanese audiences. I mean, the like Crime and Punishment was like a bestseller in Japan in the 1890s. It's very interesting uh, uh, cultural crossover. I can't quite unpack 
the reasons why that is either. Yeah. Not entirely sure, but for some reason he, he struck a chord with audiences. And so when Kurosawa adapted the idiot to film, yeah. it, that wasn't as like outlandish as you might think as a Western, you know, viewer that there was already this tradition of Dostoevsky being a popular author in Japan for many decades before this film came out. So it's interesting to me. I, um, I did like the placing it in Hokkaido. I, I love the scenery of Hokkaido yeah, yeah. Uh, from the, you know, 1950s. Uh, uh, and, and of course we get the Kurosawa weather of uh, the constant <laughs> snowfall, which is nice. Kind of like we got the qu- constant rain in a equally melodramatic film, Quiet Duel, which yeah. came out years before this. But it is kind of an odd film, isn't it? I mean, it came yeah. out between Rashomon and Akiru, and I cannot quite wrap my mind around that. <laughs> because totally speaking, I mean, this film is compared to those two films, it's just like a breed apart. It's just like some completely different animal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It almost seemed to me like it was sort of intentionally melodramatic from Kurosawa's standpoint. Yeah, it, I mean, it it does, as, again, to go back to what I was saying about it feeling like one of those, you know, uh, scenery-chewing American films, it really seemed, even the soundtrack, even the music that he was using, right. You know, it really seemed like it was it was you know playing up that whole um, soap opera y, willy won't he? Uh, you know, uh, who do I who do I love? I love you, I hate you. I mean, you know, all yeah. that. It's, it's not you know, it's it's unusual uh, for also the, also the length of it. I mean, it, yeah. in its original form, it was two hundred and sixty five minutes long. Uh, famously, the studio destroyed it and you know took out. Yeah. 100 or more minutes of, of the film which are now lost to time and yeah. will never be recovered um and 40 percent of the film 40 percent of the film was cut out of it 40 percent right. of the film so, to me it was it reminded me not just of you know like the great hollywood films of the say 30s and 40s uh those those great melodramas but it also seemed to be channeling silent films as well and i'm thinking specifically of those great epic like incredibly long silent films that came out you know yeah uh, in the golden age of of hollywood like uh birth of a nation or intolerance or greed you know these these epic films that were silent films and and the way the actors are emoting is very uh reminiscent of silent film style acting there's a lot yeah. of expression that you know uh like for instance the the main character is constantly holding his hands up to his yes yes to his yeah. lapels uh, it's almost like a silent film sort of gesture you know like the sort of thing that a silent film actor would do to convey the tortured emotions that the character is going through you know absent the dialogue yeah that's i mean that's that's a really interesting observation because i mean kurosawa very frequently has a very mannered sort of style from his actors anyway Right, Fair I mean, we, we, it's interesting in in lower depths as well. I mean, yeah. one of the things I really liked about the lower right, depths was was how overtly performative some parts of it were. Um, but this, the idiot, seemed even sort of more exaggerated than deliberately, you know, uh, I don't know, stagey, melodramatic, uh, performative um, than is often the case uh, with 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 his the way he, uh, because I mean, I you know, I my 
I, I just think that whatever actors do in a Kurosawa film, they're doing because he tells them to, that they don't, they're not making, you know, a lot of choices themselves, that it's, that he's very much in control of those, those elements. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it has to be deliberate. Um, and, you know, maybe if we had the other hundred minutes, <laughs> <laughs> you know, some, some of the, it might be easier to, to put a finger on, uh, on how it was supposed to work. Cause I don't, I don't, don't, I mean, I don't do a lot of research for these things. As I said, I prefer to just to re respond to the movies. But one of the things that I did happen to come across was a comment. Was it on the, maybe it was on the internet arcade page about how the, the, the cuts made the plot of the film unintelligible. And I don't agree with, at all. I think it's the, the plot is perfectly intelligible, but there's just um, all kinds of stuff that doesn't seem to, to be completely developed the way you would expect. Particularly well, around the supporting characters. Yeah. Perhaps the unintelligibility they're pointing toward is the need at the outset, especially for Kurosawa to sort of front load the film with a lot of expository. Yeah. Yeah, that's like true. Literal, yeah. literal yeah. expository dialogue at the beginning of yeah. the film where it's just text going across and he's saying, yeah. oh, you know, Dostoevsky wrote this novel and the whole point of the novel, just so you know, before <laughs> the movie begins, is uh, he's 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 making he's drawing a uh, a line between a person who's an idiot, who's who's uh, a, a stupid person, you know, uh, yeah. a ignorant person or or an idiot, whatever, uh, and and the con the concept of goodness, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, yeah. it's like this. Yeah. It's like your. It's like um, Russian literature one hundred and one. Yeah, <laughs> literally what I was thinking. Right, this is like a YouTube video in a way. Yeah, describing how this fits into the larger literary tradition. Um, right. As you mentioned, the movie he made before this was Rashomon. Rashomon exists on a symbolic level. Yeah. Characters are deliberately not realistic. In fact, the whole point of them is that they're not realistic, except possibly for the men at the temple. Um, do you think his mindset was on a less literal, more symbolic level at this point? You know, that's a good point. And I've been thinking about this in preparation for our discussion because, you know, on the one hand, this is very melodramatic and there are ways he's, he's ringing changes on that. I mean, we have the standard, you know, the, the, the femme fatale, the dangerous woman, and she's pretty much played straight, but you know, we normally what you have in juxtaposition to that is, is the ingenue, the morally pure one. But instead we get this, you know, hard case bitch Iaco, right. Mm -hmm. Who's not. So he's not giving you what you expect. He's instead playing on what, what seemed to me to be very deliberate reflections and parallels between these characters so that you know iako isn't opposite right she is a, a version um of her and i mean the way uh um and i i always have a hard time remembering the names of these characters but but kameda um akama and kayama are also i mean it's like a, a triple you know like a triptych right i mean even the similarity between the names of mm -hmm. uh you know kameda and kayama uh, kind of <laughs> yeah yeah it, it, it kind of uh in you know i think invites you to see a connection and especially you know the the the, the end of the film where we've got um uh kameda and akama literally side by side with the blankets over them like mirror images almost um and it reminded me a little bit of the climax of Stray Dogs, where, again, you can't really tell the difference between the hero and the villain in the fight. Uh, 
I mean, on the one hand, it's, it's clear, you know, where the, you know, one of them has stabbed someone to death and one of them hasn't. But there's also that very strong invitation in the film to see them as 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 reflections or images of each other. And that, I think, does lean in the direction, Jason, of what you were suggesting of we're, we're not being invited to see them so much as, as characters, uh, as but as, as like archetypes or as representatives of, you know, uh, fundamental concepts um, and and uh, that might be one of the reasons why a lot of people find the film unsatisfying and it may be one of the reasons frankly why I would rate it fairly low on my list of Kurosawa films uh, is that um, there's just I don't feel like I, I can hang I, I don't feel like I have an anchor to the characters that they're more like playing pieces um and the, the the you know the getting to the point about um you know i guess you know i was the real idiot you know um and the whole the, the philosophical side of the film is more than normal kurosawa is telling us as opposed to showing us i think yeah there is yeah. two um uh teiko who's yeah. performed marvelously by uh Haratsuko. yes yeah she's great yeah yeah fantastic i mean just again uh um so much of her character is through her facial expressions and just like, you know, a raised eyebrow or oh, yeah. a look. <laughs> and she's so fantastic at it. Um, uh, her character, you know, she's like this spoiled woman. Yeah. And uh, Ayako is, you know, the flip side of that, the unspoiled woman, you know, the, the, the pure woman. As it yeah. were. And and there's a wonderful you, you're talking about archetypes. You're talking yeah. about how the characters are representative of ideas. And again, here you have, you know, there's that great line toward the end of the film where I think it's um Okama and he says to Taiko, um you're afraid to meet her because you won't like her. And yet she's everything that you want to be. Yeah. She's that she's that that pure woman that you've lost and you're afraid that that one thing that you've been holding on to you're going to just you know that you have this ideal person inside of you that should have been you're going to meet her in the flesh and you're going to hate her <laughs> and, and so, you know sorry go ahead well again i mean it's just the character's I think are obviously, and, and that is in keeping with Dostoevsky, is it not? That the characters are representative of different ideas or philosophical standpoints. I mean, look at the brothers Karamazov. Yeah. It's a prime example of that, or, or crime and punishment. Uh, and I think the same holds true for the idiot, that the, that the characters, while they are in Dostoevsky's novels, incredibly well-written, uh, and brilliantly conceived characters uh, that come to life all the same, they are, you know, embodiments of different philosophical ideas that, uh, that Dostoevsky is utilizing to, you know, uh, to um, contemplate specific themes and ideas. Well, maybe yeah. that's part of what makes this film dissatisfying too is this tension between Kurosawa's love for the specific, right? And Stray Dog was three movies before The Idiot. And those characters in Stray Dog were so specifically defined as their individual people. 
right? And before that was The Quiet Duel, and before that was Drunken Angel. For all their flaws, those are very specific, well-drawn characters in those yeah. flawed films, right? And he's moving to a different level here with The Idiot. I guess I'm kind of battling that, too, um, because both Rashomon works on the symbolic level, as I mentioned, but coming between that was Scandal, which we have discussed as a group, but also is very specific in terms of the characters, right? And then he's he moves away from that because of his love of the Dostoevsky novel. And it feels like he's, I, I felt watching it like he's grasping for something he can't quite achieve yet. Or that he has this yeah. grand vision of this ideal uh, film he wants to make, but he just doesn't yet have the ability that, to shape that in a way that's that we'll see when he does uh, Throne of Blood, for example, or High and Low, where he's taking a, a work, a pre-existing work of literature and transforming it in his own way into something that's more transcendent. So I took this as, as uh, with all its flaws, as being this case of a director kind of overreaching what he's actually able to do. Kind of a transitional film. Yeah, absolutely. I think his, his slavish desire to replicate Dostoevsky on the film is another great crippling aspect of this. Whereas with The Lower Depths, we'll see yeah. Even though it, it is a, even though, you know, unlike Throne of Blood, which doesn't have a word of, of Shakespearean dialogue in it. Yeah. Uh, even though he is essentially utilizing large blocks of text within the lower depths straight out of Gorky, uh, there's a, there's a sense of experimentalism there. There's a looseness. There's, there's a, and, and maybe that's, maybe that's um, an aspect that's inherent within Gorky versus Dostoevsky. One is a play; it's more performative. The other is, a, you know, a, a Russian novel <laughs> with everything that goes along with that. Uh, so, you know, maybe maybe some of that is um, the result of the uh, of the source material, but mm -hmm. I, I don't think so. I think Dostoevsky, uh, I'm sorry, Kurosawa uh, is willing to um, or is able to, even though he he could be uh, very slavishly duplicating uh the source material like in rashomon or in lower depths um he can still utilize that material in a way that um seems distinctly kurosawa versus yeah. just an adapted text you know yeah. uh that's this is the same thing that that promptizes uh the quiet duel for example which is uh, also a very uh, slavish adaptation of a stage play, but unlike Lower Depths, it's it's too, it, it seems to be too, um, I don't know, mired in, uh, in a conscious attempt to perfectly duplicate the, the uh, source material on film. Yeah, but also with a few crucial changes. I think you just put your finger on it right there, Dom, is that there are virtually no changes yeah. versus the original text. I mean, there are sections that are line for line, as I understand it, taken directly from the original. And it's the over-slavishness. Well, I mean, the, the one big difference that I can think of, and admittedly, I'm not a Dostoevsky expert at all, but mm -hmm. the one big difference I can think of between... Uh, the novel, The Idiot, and Kurosawa's film is 
the extent to which religion is foregrounded in the novel and is almost entirely absent from the film. Right, like Dostoevsky's novel is overtly Christian, right? Yeah, and maybe that would be a necessity of the audience because of yeah. the lack of familiarity or the uh, with Christianity and Japanese audiences, or maybe maybe all of that Christian material ended up <laughs> on the cutting room floor. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I mean, when the, when the when 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 the central character of the story, assuming we accept, you know, you know he is the central character, the idiot is the central character. Um, is defined in the original novel as as like an idiot and as an example of purity as the sense of the pure christian soul right sure. um and you take that away from the idiot in this film that to go back to what you're saying earlier eric about what they what they symbolize or what they represent it makes a fundamental difference to what the story is saying what it means right um mm-hmm. it uh oh yeah but okay so playing with that Again, we've talked a lot about Kurosawa's reaction to World War II. Yeah. Really affected the rest of his life. Um, having Kinji come back and have, I don't know, uh, does him have, can you see him as a symbol of the country, its pain, its uh, everything it's gone through as a kind of civic religion? It's not overt though, right? There's not enough to kind of build that case, I don't think. No, it's very yeah. sketchy to me. Yeah, I, I want sure to build that case, it. but I don't think I have enough evidence to. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not sure what to do with it, but it does seem like you know, a, it's not like he couldn't have found analogs to the Christianity. He could have. We have like you know the one scene uh, with you know the the you know the boot the you know the, the Buddhist prayers, right? He could have easily created um, a sort of you know more Japanese friendly um, spiritual side to it to connect the uh, the idiot character to. But I mean, he completely secularizes it. It's it's explained strictly in terms um, of the medical condition and not mm-hmm. in terms of any sort of higher spiritual, you know, correlation. Um, not that that isn't there in the film. I mean, you, to go back to a point you were making earlier, Eric, about um, you know the the the, the two women, um, uh, Ayako and and Taiko. Uh, Taiko is you know that standard. Well, she is she's the fallen woman, right? You know, and that's what that term carries that implication with it. She is, she is stained. She is dishonored. And that comes up over and over and over again in the film, um, which, you know, makes her, uh, you know, socially a pariah basically. Um, but, you know, and structurally, Ayako is there as the flip side of that, you know, she's, you know, you have the, you know, they have the whore and the virgin, right. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's not, Right, the, the 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 point about purity in this film isn't you know the purity of the 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 uh, the the person who has not sinned, the person who is pure in body and spirit, which is what you'd expect, and the person who has sinned, who has transgressed, who has become stained, right? Which is uh, which is you know Tycho. Um, yeah, and that maybe this is just me. I don't know, but I mean, to me, Iako is herself as stained. Um, not in body, not literally, right? She hasn't transgressed against, um, you know, the, the 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 codes of what what is appropriate female behavior. She's she's, you know, um, a perfectly you know from any any social perspective, from any moral perspective, she's perfectly eligible um, object of, of marital desire. Um, 
and you know that's you know part of where the for me anyway the Kayama um, Kameda Yako Triangle comes into play right he you have you know the, these are two men who are both torn between the the saintly and the and the and the sinner like woman um, but the the so called saintly one is far less sympathetic right she may be morally pure but she ha- she's soulless right she is fundamentally unable to grasp what it is about um Kameda that makes him able to look past the from i think his point of view the the, the, the purely trivial matter of oh yeah so well right yeah you've uh, you've you've transgressed against the social codes and you're you're not a virgin you know what i see isn't those external things what i see is is the essence of who you are um and on that level they're not opposites or maybe they are but in a different way because you know from my point of view taiko is the more morally admirable character than iago mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i could be totally all wet here and you know i'm eric i suspect may have something to say about that but I mean, that's just, you know, when I was watching it, I was thinking, I, you know, she's, uh, she, one of the points of the film to me seems to be these people make their own problems, right? Um, she can't just accept that, you know, and then the, it's almost like a cat fight, right? You know, uh, when they, when they get together over, you know, I'll tell you who you really are and, um, uh, if she just like accept that he's gonna that that uh, that Kameda can love and admire Taiko, but also love her in a different way and want to marry her, um, instead of wanting you know to to win, right? Um, a lot of things would have been different. I mean, that her her problem from that point of view, it, to me, almost seems to be similar to. Uh, <laughs> to uh, Akama's problem, right? Uh, and they're, again, they're very different. She doesn't murder anybody, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard not to, it's hard not to suggest that, uh, hard for me not to think that, you know, part, one of the reasons Kameda ends up dead is because of her. Not as directly and immediately as how Tycho ends up dead. But, you know, uh, it's actually one of the things that kind of bothered me about the film is... <laughs> is uh her, her 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 character and her constant you know vacillation and that that montage of scenes where she's i hate you never come and see me again oh isn't this beautiful um that you know I, she made me think of scarlett o'hara of all characters yeah and, i love yeah, you red I, I, I hate you red i love you red i hate you red I, I, I see your point there and i would frankly say the exact same thing about scarlett o'hara as i've been saying about yako i can't stand scarlett o'hara she's the architect of her own fate Right. Uh, the architect of her own fate. And uh, it's interesting you mentioned that, or you you frame it in such a way. You also said these characters make their own problems. And I can see a through line, you know, in the idiot of that great theme of Kurosawa's that I keep coming back to, which is existential humanism. Yep. Yep. Yes. I mean, it's here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Dostoevsky was, you know, for all intents and purposes, an existentialist. Yeah. In many ways, 
or a precursor to existentialism. So I can see how he has sympathies or a great admiration for Dostoevsky's work. Yeah. Because Dostoevsky is exploring the same sorts of themes that Kurosawa was, was exploring. Yeah. You know, albeit within an entirely different cultural context. <clears throat> I think where the, the the great fault is his his admiration for Dostoevsky gets the best of him, and maybe he should have done something like he did with Ron or with Throne yeah. of Blood. Yeah. And just took the basic concept of this triangle, or well, I mean, it's not really a triangle, but it's four people. Uh, and five, if you count Koyama, five, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. five people. Uh, so whatever that would be, um, a, pen, a Pentagon, <laughs> a Pentagon. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, there's an unusual uh, one. You took that basic concept and then you know set it within I don't know you know uh, Japan in the nineteen post post war Japan in the nineteen fifties, but do it in a way that it's not you know that it, it doesn't avoid the specific cultural uh the the sort of like jason says the what's so wonderful about kurosawa is his, his attention to detail and his you yeah. know his how he he's able to huh. um w one of his strengths is his is is you know he's he's so focused on the minute particulars of filmmaking yeah and uh this this is too crowded with, you know, Russian <laughs> noise. Uh, yeah. The characters are wearing Russian clothing, and you know they're and they're behaving in, in a Western sort of way, like you said, stylistically. And maybe that's the experiment of the film. You know, maybe it, it is intended to be sort of an homage to this to the silent films of Hollywood through uh, Russian literature, or <laughs> and then into the Japanese context. So it's this weird kind of. Right, multinational just, sort of feel right. to it, it that never, it never quite coalesces. You know, it's it's got it's it's got. There's just too much. There's too much noise in, in this film, uh, and I think if he had just stripped away, uh, it, it's so overburdened with that uh, desire to to. Uh, either homage the silent Hollywood film or, or the, the classic Hollywood cinema um, or the, or the great Russian novels of Dostoevsky that he can't get to the film that he wants to make, but the themes are there. That's my point. The, the, yeah. the essential themes are there that these are characters who are uh, able to change. They're able to redeem themselves through their actions and ultimately you know they're they're faced with choices and and um their fate is the result of the choices they make you know and that is that great kurosawa theme but that's yeah, yeah and that's well it may be part of japanese literature but it makes me think of shakespeare and the western tradition right the the tragic hero although there's no one here that fits the classic image of the tragic hero either um, I want to say that despite all this film's considerable flaws, there are some scenes that are just absolutely spectacular looking. And Dom, you called out earlier on, like how beautiful the scene shot in Hokkaido are. That and, was Eric who called that out. Oh, it was, was Eric, excuse me. 
Uh, Not that I don't agree, but it was Eric who said it. <laughs> I apologize. There's just some absolutely breathtaking cinematography in this film. Yeah. Yeah. The, the way that the way that he um, composes the, the shots, and there's so I don't know if you guys noticed this, but there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of triangular shots in this film where there were three characters uh, on screen. You know, mm. uh, generally speaking, one on the left, one on the right, one in the middle, either up above or down below, and maybe that's maybe maybe it's a s- symbolic representation of the cross out uh, uh, Dom. I don't know, but <laughs> maybe it was it was fitting the Christian symbolism in there wherever he could. But uh, there, there was so much of that in the uh, film, and it was uh, really like the way it was composed. Christians. Like for example, I'll give you one example at the beginning of the film, where um, Kameda and uh, oh gosh, what's the the main character's name? Um, Akama, Akama. Mm-hmm. Where they're looking at uh, the the photo of Taeko. Oh yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, right. Yeah, and you you see their reflection, and they're gazing up at her, and there's this you know this gorgeous framed photo in a window, uh, and she's up above them, you know, and they're sort of down below looking up at her, and it's just it, it was breathtaking. And there's this music playing. It's very odd choice of music, and I think Jason, you mentioned that earlier, that there was this, or maybe Dominic, maybe you mentioned that. There was this kind of like, there was this kind of odd mixture of this uh diegetic and non-diegetic sound in this film yeah and this kind of like the classic cinema of the strings you know like those melodramatic strings that we always hear but then there were also snippets of of popular western influenced japanese you know pop songs playing like at that particular moment there's some japanese music playing it's it's one of these songs that has that kind of big band uh 1940s jazz sort of sound to it uh while they're looking into the window has this but it has kind of an operatic feel and uh it was just such a gorgeous scene and the and the film is filled with it uh yeah. with scenes like that yeah uh, kurosawa is always a pleasure to watch and i mean it, the, you know the, the extent to which he's thinking compositionally I mean, i'm glad you mentioned that because it kind of slipped my mind but one of the things that i remember thinking watching the movie is when we get to the scene where, you know, Yako, um, she has her back to Kameda and she's saying, don't look at me. But he can see a reflection in the window and the expression on her face in the window, right? But we don't see the shot. We just see them from the point of view. That we, don't, we don't get the reverse shot where we see the reflection in contrast to that earlier scene where we're seeing the picture of Taiko in the window and uh, Kamaya and, and uh, uh, Shurmafuna's character, whatever it is, I'm dropping his name again, standing there, reflected yeah, in it. Um, And it's one of those, to me, something I've mentioned before in these, one of these great examples of Kurosawa's really interesting sense of not showing you certain things. Mm -hmm. Right? Because it's such an obvious moment to create that visual echo, right? But he doesn't show it to us. We have to imagine it. We're we're left and I think, you know, we're we're left um, hanging there you know what what is it uh that uh what you know what is the reflection how 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 is the reflection different from our our view um and you know where was would he be in relationship to her in the reflection which is all present in the earlier scene um and I, i'm just rambling i'm sorry but it just you know eric bringing up the, the 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 picture in the window in that scene you know brought it back to me that that's this is the you know the kind of thing that suggests you know kurosawa's careful architectural design and it really makes me wonder what those extra hundred minutes 
would have would have meant. Because I mean, there are scenes. You know, uh, there's a couple of scenes uh, in the in the second half of the film where we see um, uh, people in the foreground, say I don't know, walking across, be, you know, between uh, across the hall between two doorways or something, and we see Kayama like standing in the in the back there, like almost catatonic or with his back to the audience. I'm watching that and I'm thinking. This is going to come back. This is a, this is a standard Kurosawa ploy, foreground, background. He's there, um, and it kind of comes back in that you know, reference late in the film to him having tried to commit suicide, right? Which kind of just drops on us, yeah. Which just drops on us, and I have to think that's one of the things that in the in in the you know four hours and twenty five minute version would have you know paid off, right? According to the video I watched on it, which is Alex done by alex cox the filmmaker oh yeah yeah he talks about how a lot of it was supposed to apparently focus on the supporting characters yeah correct and that and gets into it... one of my things which is we see takashi shimura yeah in small background scenes yeah we know how kurosawa loves shimura back shimura is going to be the star of his next film yeah um so there's got to be a much bigger plot line for him that we just never get yeah, and as far I mean, I didn't spend hours looking, but as far as I can tell, um, the screenplay doesn't seem to survive. No, Cox tells this sad story too that when Kurosawa was working on one of his final films, he had access to the Toho vaults. Yeah, and went through the Toho vaults trying desperately to find any shred of this content, and couldn't find a single frame of it. Yeah. Yeah, they're, apparently, and from what I've read, the majority of the missing 100 minutes are from the part one, uh, yeah. the first half of the film. And it's obvious. You can see scenes where they yeah. just sort of like cut scenes where there's one that's just so egregious. I mean, she's, yeah. she's walking across yeah, the room yeah. and, and literally <laughs> cut it like three or four times. And it must have been this really stately, like, you know, <laughs> dramatic, yeah. uh, long shot that probably was just completely meticulously staged, you know, uh, as Kurosawa did. And there, <laughs> some ham-fisted editor is, <laughs> this is going on too long. I'm going to take out two seconds here and five seconds there. <laughs> yeah, but it's just, brutal but uh, there's a scene where uh the drunken father comes in right yeah yeah i think it's uh kayama's father i i believe and um he sits down and he slams his sake bottle down on the table and he starts to talk yep and then they cut <laughs> like, uh, he begins the sentence and then they cut away and you could tell that the people who have been sitting there listening to this guy ramble on drunkenly for probably five minutes or whatever it was yeah <laughs> The the one that haunts me more than anything else is the scene with the uh the mother who's uh, gone senile. Yeah, yeah. And they it's this wonderful scene that goes about two minutes or so, where um she takes down the the food from the idols and gives it to the people, and she's doing her best to like just do go through her ceremonies. And she's the alternate, both this beautiful and pathetic character at the same time. So powerful. Like my my perfect version of the idiot has like 110 minutes of scenes like that. <laughs> yeah, right. they would have added an interesting uh, texture to it for sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, all in all, I, I, I think it's it's a flawed film. It, it's not one that I would want to revisit uh, <laughs> anytime soon. Uh, but nevertheless, yeah. I was still sort of intoxicated by it. I, 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 I couldn't stop watching it for, for all of its 
two hours and 46 minutes. I was entirely taken in by the characters. I mean, we have some fantastic acting in this film. There's some powerhouses of uh, titans yeah. of Japanese cinema. I mean, Chieko Higayashima from uh, uh, Tokyo Story and, and Satsukahara, I mentioned before, from late, you know, late spring or early spring. Um, Koshiro Mifune, uh, mm. uh, Dom, you, or, uh, Jason, you mentioned te uh, Takashi Shimura, mm -hmm. who's underutilized, but it's nevertheless, small, there. Small, <laughs> him, yeah. small role. And, and uh, even uh, Chiaki uh, Minoru, who was uh, in yeah. many Kurosawa's films, and he was really, yeah. he's, I, I, you know, I think the more I see these films, the more I start to pay attention to somebody other than Mifune. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and I was really impressed by his performance in this film. And it made me think, you know, he was one of the, the seven samurai and he was in yep. uh, of blood. He was in hidden fortress. He's in Rashomon. Yeah. Uh, he played the, um, the uh, priest in Rashomon. So was he the priest. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I believe he was, he was the priest right at the, at the gate at the Rashomon gate. It could be. I, I know, I know he was in it. I'm just not placing. Yeah. When he was. Yeah. So, you know, I'm just from that standpoint, and then again, also the, the scenery of, of Hokkaido and, and, and the, uh, the just absolutely immaculate cinematography and, 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 oh, yeah. and sand in this film. It's just extraordinary. So there's a lot to appreciate here. But as a Kurosawa film, I think, I think it was, a, as you said, Dominic, deliberate. Yeah. A stylistic choice on Kurosawa's part. I believe... From my standpoint, it's it's a in a uh, noble experiment, but ultimately a failed one. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I was debating whether to even give this film a rating, based on the fact so much was cut out. But no, I agree. It's a flawed film, and I think most of the flaws either are directly or indirectly due to Kurosawa. And I want to give him a pass in a way for creating this film that met his vision, but I'm not sure really. Four hours of of the idiots uh well, might have been too much well yeah it's interesting because one of the things that i've mentioned a couple of times thinking is you know how much more might it have helped this film to have those mm -hmm. extra minutes but i also find myself thinking watching it, and my response eric is a bit different from yours is even at two hours and 46 minutes this film is too long <laughs> oh yeah certainly is sometimes less is more yeah <laughs> um uh, Perfect transition for us to. Anything else you want to talk about with this? Well, Eric? We no, I mean uh, the lower depths is a perfect example of how less can be so much more. Yeah, on, on so many <laughs> levels. I mean, even just on the level of you know setting, almost the entire film takes place inside the well, the hovel basically that the characters live in. There are occasional scenes outside of it, but we never get out of the sort of the you know, maze of alleyways down there, except as you. Real... Sorry, go ahead. Well, I don't mean to wrap, but it's a real conscious attempt on Kurosawa's part to to uh, replicate the stage setting of yeah. of, uh, of the source material. Yeah, and I mean, so apart I, from the sorry, go ahead. Before we go too deep, I just yeah. want to put this film in context in terms okay. of his career. So he did the Idiot, then he did the the weird short film, The Men Who Tread on the Tiger's Tail, which I just have no ability to figure out where it fits in anything. We'll talk about that eventually. <laughs> then he hits maybe the greatest string of films any director has ever created. Kuru, Seven Samurai, mm -hmm. I Live in Fear, which we all agree is dramatically underrated. Yep. Throne of Fear, 
a throne of blood excuse me <laughs> throne of wow. blood would be a very different movie <laughs> yeah. that's a great uh, and then and then lower depths hidden fortress yep uh, the bad sleep well your jimbo yeah. senjuro high and low yeah. and red beard like probably the single greatest run of films in in cinematic history i would say yeah i, yeah, I can't argue with that i mean so this is this is my question then um Seven of them are five star movies. Maybe eight of them are five star movies, uh, depending on how much you love your Jimbo and Sanjuro. Certainly yeah. amazing films, right? Um, how do we how do we put Lower Depths in the in the context of these other films? I think it certainly I think it certainly holds its own. I think it's a it's an absolute cinematic masterpiece. Personally, yeah, it's it's interesting because it's very different from most of them also. I mean, it, it, it has the medieval setting, which it shares with yeah. with a lot of the others. But other than that, um, it doesn't really share anything of the ethos of the medieval films. Um, it's it's very much, uh, you know, a kitchen sink drama, right? Uh, right. A, a character study um, with really, I mean, it's not like the things don't happen, but with no real action in it. And the whole thing is very contained and claustrophobic. I mean, we get like, I think I think like the opening shot where the people are dumping the, the refuse down on top of the the uh, the hovel is the only shot we get that actually really is outside of that environment. Except for every now and then we get the camera panning up and you can see the sky behind them as they're down in this this pit. For um, a brief moment at the there. end of part two or act two, we see the people looking down as they're having yeah. the the fight. Yeah. yeah, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, and I mean, again, you know, I know I go on about this all the time, Kurosawa's mastery of, uh, you know, camera work and, and uh, cinema, like the opening sequence in that film where, you know, the camera just moves and suddenly there's a new character mm -hmm. and it moves again and there's a new character. Um, so the, the world opens up, but it opens up in this extremely narrow, confined space. So you simultaneously get a sense of extreme, you know, closeness and claustrophobia. But you also get a sense of the diversity and variety of these people in this environment, strictly because of Kurosawa's camera work and, my, and the way I looked at it anyway. Absolutely, and and how the how the camera, for lack of a better word, treats each of the characters. Yeah, the amount of attention that it gives it, the amount of focus. Yeah, the, you know how close it wants to get to them, how yeah. how far away it wants to be at certain times. It's really interesting. Yeah. really sets you as the viewer within that specific setting like you're almost a a, a um you're almost participating in, in the dr dramatic action that's taking place like you're there with them and yeah. you're implying something that really struck me on the second watch which we have no pov character no yeah exactly. we're kind of our yeah. own pov character in this film yeah kind which of is... like in rashomon in a way yeah, yeah. Very rare. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's you know very much an ensemble piece, right? Um, and you know, the, Eric was commenting on this earlier. The inclination is almost always if 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 Mifune is in there to default to him, but clearly not, right? I mean, he uh, he's an important character, but he doesn't actually have that much to do. No. Uh, this, you know, much uh, there, there are, are plot elements that, that seem 
more foregrounded than the stuff involving him. Uh, and so, yeah, it's it's really striking um, in its in its uh, insistence on each of these characters. And again, Jason, you were talking earlier about you know the 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 Kurosawa's you know, meticulous detail and the, the clearly etched character. That this film, they're they're all very. I mean, I, I don't even know what half their names are because I'm not sure their names are even mentioned in the film. But they're all very clearly drawn. I think that's so fascinating too. So we don't know. We don't know. He's just the actor, right? Yeah. We never know yeah. the actor's name. But when when we have this amazing conclusion where we find out he's hung himself, it's, uh, you feel you feel so much uh, appreciation for him, and the ability to bring these characters to life, no matter what yeah. we know of them is such a great indication of the brilliance of Kurosawa. Um, have either have you ever watched the Renoir take on that? I uh, no, I've never. I I there, meant to I'd meant to watch it, but I haven't. I think there's been five cinematic adaptations of of Gorky's play, of which Kurosawa's is the last. I could be wrong about that. So it hasn't been done in a long time then. Yeah. I don't think it has. So, uh, I, I, you know, I mean, the so Kurosawa, as we know, has a passion for theater. Um, yeah, and I think that's absolutely on display here. The like uh, the the sort of um, uh, there's a term for it in in cinema where you have uh, a film that takes or or a television program or whatever that takes place within one setting. And yeah. I forget what it's called. Yeah. That's uh, obviously bottle not... episode. Yes. So this is this is Kurosawa's bottle film. <laughs> <laughs> he still managed to get rain into it though. <laughs> uh, the and and you know this this set was like you know it was built on a a uh, studio set, and the level of detail, like Jason, as you okay. mentioned. I mean, Kurosawa's attention to detail. We we spoke of that about that like with Stray Dog, which was another film that was built on a set, but ab looks absolutely authentic. And you again, you have that here. There's there's an interesting sort of her, uh, interplay between the um, inherent um, artificiality of theater and then yeah. the absolute um, realism of of that's required by cinema. And I, caught a, I caught a behind the scenes feature at about that. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of little anecdotes that are amazing. Like the, the set was so filthy. One of the actors actually got sick, breathing the air from it. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, Kurosawa insisted on walking in his stocking feet on the set too, as a Japanese person commonly does uh, in someone's house. And his socks were filthy and soaked with uh, dirt from it. Um, so this was all kind of all played up. Um, they apparently built a full two-story set too. Made me think of something like Sinodoke in New York, where they have this enormous set built for it, or a rear right. window to be a oh, yeah. less yeah. obscure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and what that does, what that does for the actors, is it gives their performances, you know, that added level of authenticity because yeah. just. To have that setting and to have it be so hyper-realistic, I mean, you could imagine that even with the cameras there, even with the directors, even with, you know, everybody on the set, that the the, the actors themselves must have felt uh, so transported 
and so a part of that you know um that uh edo period that they were trying to to uh, replicate on film the other thing is he rehearsed for something like three weeks straight with the actors and the cameras and the lighting all set up and they ran through these sometimes three times a day one of that one of the actresses 20 days and the other says about two three weeks so um before they filmed it and then they filmed it more or less in sequence over just a handful of days now there's that one young. shot in there of course it's like a six minute unbroken shot yeah which was actually filmed in real time mm -hmm. um and Kurosawa was credited as saying what he wanted to do is get the actors out of their roles and have them really live in those roles. Yeah. yeah it comes across. And, you know, that is that, that sort of method acting that he was doing. I mean, that's just drawn straight from the theater. You know, you, yeah. you put on the stage, you, you have the scenery in place and you have them, um, mm -hmm. you have them uh, uh, practice uh, and do entire run throughs and, and, Who's the other filmmaker, the British filmmaker, Mike Lee, who also came out of the theater. He was famous for doing that as well. Getting the sets built ahead of time, having the characters come in, get the in costume and run through the entire film. Don't run the cameras, you know. Yeah. But just have them run through it without any of that um, interference, you know, te technical interference. And then once they've nailed it, then you turn the cameras on. I think we see that in the, in the depth of the performances here. These feel realistic in ways that even the performances in his other films don't feel realistic. I think you were getting that at that a moment ago when you were talking about, even though you don't know the names of these characters, you have a strong sense of who they are. Yeah, yeah. And the performances are uh, stunning. I mean, especially, uh, especially, I, I was really impressed by, uh, by, um, uh, Kamatari uh, Fujiwara as the as the actor. We've seen him in plenty of Kurosawa films, but I thought he really stood out in this in that part, um, especially because you know, first time through, I had no idea where I was going, right? Um, so like him hanging himself at the end was like a total shock. And so you're looking back and think, oh yeah, in retrospect, it makes perfect sense, and it's all there in the performance. But mm -hmm. you know, it's it's a beautiful, beautifully constructed film because you're totally set up to think that the one's gonna who's gonna end up dead is the prostitute. This is a case where I think us having watched so many of Kurosawa's films and seeing so many of the recurring actors has really helped us to get yeah. appreciation of uh, to see these to see the the depths of the performances here. Yeah, again, you have uh, Chiaki Minoru I just mentioned, and the idiot, and here he's playing the the ex samurai uh, uh, Tonosama. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Such and a fascinating character, and he's and he's, fan, and he's absolutely fast, fantastic. Mm -hmm. assuming he even really is an actual ex-samurai and isn't just you know because yeah. there's some there's some skepticism about that among the other uh tenants right right uh, i thought that was really funny too that echo though right you know here we have this guy who's famously played a samurai but the <laughs> only time we see the sword is like here's your sword <laughs> uh -huh. and it's yeah it was uh yeah he's again stunning uh, in it in, in the film um I can draw some very, very explicit uh, parallels between the idiot and this film, actually, because again, yeah. you have um, you have these these love triangles taking place, 
once again. And you also yeah. have it within the context of the characters being representational of certain philosophical concepts. Yeah. But mm-hmm. it doesn't feel so claustrophobic. It feels alive and, and it's not weighted or burdened down um, by its source material. And I, I can't, you know, I just, I can't help but feel that that is absolutely the result of his decision to take a, which was in keeping with his, his uh, cinematic style at that point, but taking a, a, an entirely naturalistic approach to this, the, the source material and how it was conveyed on film. I mean, these, yeah. these characters really come alive. You don't feel like when you're watching this movie, you don't feel like the characters are acting. You don't feel like they're emoting, you know? Yeah. And and part of that is a result of their lived-in performance, but also part of it is, I think, a stylistic choice on the part of Kurosawa to make these characters seem as flesh and blood as possible. They're not archetypes, archetypes of cinema, but they're actual flesh and blood human beings that he's put, uh, you know, trained his camera on and he's allowing uh, in a, in a, um, in a very involved fashion, like I mentioned earlier, where you feel like you're a participant uh, in, in what's taking place. There's no, there's no, uh, there's nothing in between the viewer and the characters. There's no, it's not front loaded with a bunch of unnecessary, you know, um, cinematic tropes, as it were. Yeah, even even the super choreographed stuff, like the like the you know the the, the gambler rap <laughs> early in oh, the yeah. film, where they just sort of break into this little, or the 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 song and dance routine at the end, which are very obviously you know performative moments, don't come across as like oh you know the moment in a musical where they break into song. They 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 really seem organic and to emerge from the characters in the moment. Um, right. And despite their artificiality, right? They're, despite their overt performativeness. Um, and that, that is one of the things that really is, did strike me about this film is, is how often it, re- and Eric, you were talking before about the, you know, trying to you know, replicate the stage, that, that it reminds us of staginess and performance. Um, I mean, like the actor's little, little room literally has a curtain, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when he enters, he's coming through a curtain. Yeah, um, there's a moment where he's hovering behind yeah. the curtain, like waiting, waiting to come on stage. But it doesn't it doesn't make the film feel artificial or performative. I think instead what it reminds us of um, is the extent to which, you know, these characters living these desperate lives are dependent on, you know, dreams, you know, I, I, ideas of how they might escape from this. You know, I'll get my vital organs fixed and I can go back to the stage um, or, you know, once I, you know, once my wife is dead, I can go back to being a tinker and, you know, get my job or, you know, the the, the prostitute character, like literally, you know, zoning out. Um, the, the you know the characters are sort of you know depending on the notion of artificial solutions to their problems, but the film is denying that they exist. Again, that might sound they're, like they're bullshit, dreamers, but, they're idealists, yeah. despite yeah. everything they've been through. Yeah, which is such a humanistic approach to these characters. There's a there's a kind of deep love for these incredibly flawed people, and respect for their ambitions in life and there's a real message there i think this is this kind of is right on the edge of being one of kurosawa's more polemical movies too because he's effectively saying 
you you may walk past these people every day and throw your trash into their hole in the ground yeah but these are still fully fledged human beings who have ambitions and dreams uh and just can't for whatever reason actually get out of their hole yeah i mean that's what the opening you know the opening scene where they're dumping the garbage out of they're saying yeah it's just the you know the, the refuse heap right it's kind of on the nose <laughs> yeah but it, it gets the point across um I was going to say something else now. I forget what it was. There's something else to do about the, uh, about the, yeah, I know what it was. Um, I remember one of the things that I came across again, you know, not doing deep dives, maybe it was the Wikipedia page said something about the, this film was not all that well received initially because it's like so nihilistic and that seemed uncharacteristic of Kurosawa. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, well, I don't know if you watch the same Kurosawa films I have, and not that, Jason, what you're saying about, you know, the dreams and the hopes and the optimism always being there. But one of the things that I've always been impressed by with Kurosawa is the clear sightedness that he juxtaposes against that. Right. Um, I, I mean, even, even something like Seven Samurai is pretty grim. <laughs> I think I think some of that equation of this film with nihilism is yeah. because of there's a tendency, particularly on the part of from the Western standpoint, yeah, uh, which has a tradition of nihilism, whereas uh, the Eastern uh, um, religions generally don't. Yeah, although you could perceive, you could say that Buddhism has a nihilistic aspect to it. Yeah, uh, because you know, like a, a all life is suffering and and that sort of thing. Um, well, I, but right, keep going. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I think I live in fear is much more nihilistic. Oh, certainly. Yeah. And yeah. Throne of Blood right before this is well, the ending is uh about as dark and and uh painful as you can watch. Yeah, and if you want to read the films that way, Kagamusha ran. Literally the vengeance of the yeah. gods upon these yeah. these uh, kings. Um uh Dursa Usula, uh Dedeska Den. Uh there are exceptions. Redbeard is an obvious exception. Um but I mean, you know, even Yojimbo, for all its fun, is a pretty cynical movie. Yeah, what we talked about uh, that in Hidden Fortress too. Yeah, you mentioned Jason Kurosawa's sympathies for uh, the, these characters, yeah. and I wondered if if either of you noticed any any sort of anticipatory parallels between this film and Dodeska Den. Yes, Which, actually, well, I was talking about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, keep going with that thought, Eric. Well, I mean, just from the basic standpoint that these are, this is a film that's populated by people who are, you know, kind of like living amongst the trash, right? I mean, they're, they're society's castaways, they're is lesser people, and yet they still have hopes, they still have dreams, they still have, you know, dr these incredible um, dramas in their in their lives. Yeah, it's on a smaller scale, but there's the same kind of multiplicity of little plots involving them, right? Right. Um, and yeah, there were, uh, you know, a lot of the, I, I really was thinking a lot of, I wasn't, I didn't think like, oh, dry run for Tedesco Den or anything when I was watching <laughs> yeah. it, but I, I was thinking, yeah, a lot of what he's doing here sort of comes to fruition in a, from a different perspective in Tedesco Den. Like, what was that, like 20 years later? Right. Not 20 years later, I guess, more like 15 years later. They've been wanting for years to make that, right? Yeah, it's this is some echoes of Reiko in High and Low too. Yeah, the, the oh yeah, yeah, certainly, yeah. Like he's a society's outcast. And he lives amongst the, you know, in this poor sort of hovel. 
I mean, heck, we see that in the police dramas too from yeah. earlier on, right? I mean, this is this is clearly one of Kurosawa's main themes is that the innate sure. humanity of everybody along the uh along the chain in life. It's the motivation for the main character Nikiru. Yes. Uh, again, another film that really has that super delicate balance between a very clear-eyed sort of, you know, pessimistic take on the limitations of human compassion and generosity but coupled with you know a genuine you know humanistic sympathy for the characters but there's a there's a fatalism in this film yeah don't you yeah. think that that's that's otherwise absent i think from many of his films that's a good point which does give yeah. it a kind of darker tone you know yeah it's, it's more overt certainly yeah well these are people who are alone too they have all they have is each other yeah and family has been a major theme in his films these are people who are isolated right yeah most of them don't have a relationship right yeah or the most tenuous possible relationship yeah the the tinker has a wife who dies uh, early on Mm -hmm. Uh, the the former samurai and the prostitute seem to have some kind of relationship i mean but it seems to be mainly an exploitative one um uh you know and mifune and the the two women that he's interested in but it's not really most of them are loners in a way even the old man who comes in right we don't even get like a backstory for him right oh you're talking about the uh the buddhist pilgrim yeah yeah there, there's sort of an implication that his past may not be as as yeah. pure as he yeah as... that it may be pretty dark there's the the you know the sort of implication that he might have a really uh a really good understanding of what killing someone might be like for instance <laughs> right for example yeah. yeah yeah that struck me too why is this man with these uh people whose lives have collapsed around them what has happened to him and then just like takes off i love that yeah i'm 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 looking around for this get me out of here (laughs) and even the ending right they have they're all dancing they're they're partying everything's exciting and then the actor hangs himself and the answer the the reaction is we were having such a good time why did he have to go and do this to us it's kind of like the ending of a wedding, Jason. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank Isn't God it? no one else. Thank God it was only a stranger who was killed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's actually funny because when I, I watched it, um, I think I watched it on the Internet Archive, and it got to the end, and you know, then you have the you know the close up of the the gambler, and he's basically like basically looking right at us, right, looking at the camera yes. and saying, oh, you know, it's such a great time, and then he has to go and hang himself and ruin the whole thing. The bastard. Yeah. Cut to black. And that was it. And I was thinking, did I miss something? Just because there was no the end or anything. And then the, that version that I saw, it just like you know, like the ending of uh, No Country for Old Men, like just hard black, right? Or the ending of The Sopranos, boom. And I was thinking, is this like an incomplete version? No. <laughs> so I had to go looking around. Yeah. And and I found another one where we have that, and then you get the the the, the end card at the end of it. And I was thinking, okay, so yeah, that what a great ending. We're all complicit. Yeah, you know, I would rather be enjoying myself singing this little song than sympathizing with this guy who hanged himself uh, for, I mean, I think obvious reasons retrospectively, but that, you know, we didn't see coming. It's a real gut punch of of an ending. Yeah, it is. I think it's like this, this real interesting tension that exists between the gambler and the, um, the pilgrim. Yeah. You know, in that, the gambler is 
he's not not religious at all you know he's he's kind of living this um this life of hedonistic pleasure yep and obviously the buddhist pilgrim is rejecting all of that worldly um pleasure um which is you know in in buddhist philosophy is emptiness means nothing yeah you know and that and, and and all suffering comes from desire and the gambler is pure desire <laughs> spaced his whole life around and so you have this real interesting tension that exists between these these two opposing philosophical standpoints that i don't think is ever like really properly resolved at the end of the film i i think the the the, the whole meat of it is to to sort of play with the tension that exists between these these two um, uh, diametrically opposite ways of viewing life, mm-hmm. and those two characters seem to be, in from what I can see, they're the only two that seem to be content with where they are. Yeah, yeah. In, in the state of things that that everyone finds himself in, everyone else is sort of like clawing around for something better. You know, they're 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 trying to lift themselves selves out of the situation that they found themselves in but those two just seem to be perfectly content to be in where they are in the situation that they're in which i thought was sort of interesting and i was trying to trying to follow that through and and see where it took me but i wonder if that if that occurred to either of you in watching this film i hadn't thought of it to be honest but now that you mention it i i i totally i think see where you're coming from yeah yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what point to make on it myself, but I think you covered it. You discussed it well. I mean, I was thinking about how I was struck. It was uh, Koji Mitsui, who, among other things, is the boy in uh, Doneskaden, and also was one of the one of the main characters in Hidden Fortress, right? The one who played the boy couldn't have been because he was no, only. Wasn't a... the... oh, sorry. I'm yeah, wrong there. Boy. I'm wrong there. I apologize. He's a he's a supporting character in both films. I'm I made an incorrect comment. No worries. Just <laughs> just edit it out. <laughs> no, we've gone too far for me to edit it out. <laughs> uh, you know, and oh, no, the he's other the, thing that... he's the father of the of it was the kid in the car, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Okay. Which character? Which character was it? Was the one he... who's always the dreaming and talking about the house that he and the kid are going to build, and the kid like dies of yeah, starvation. He's in. He's in lower depths as well. That's the same actor. Which actor is it? As the as the uh, actor, he's the actor as the actor. Oh, uh, Fujiwara Kamatari. Kamatari. Oh. I'm, I'm no, that can't, that can't be him, no. Uh, I'm two ways. Okay. He was in a Kiru. I think one of the him. other... Anyway, I, let's, let's keep going. I think one of the other <laughs> uh, interesting aspects of this film is, and, and Jason, this is one of your favorite themes, is how it, uh, it symbolically represents post-war Japan and the the, you know, horrible conditions that people were living in at that time and it's interesting to me that this close to uh 
that time period, Kurosawa was allowed to depict Japanese society in such a state of disrepair because there was such a concerted attempt uh, among Jap uh, Japanese film studios not to portray that sort of, um, you know, uh, condition of, of modern life in Japan. And it was something that he got in trouble for just 10 years earlier in, in Stray Dog for depicting. Yeah, and Toho was willing to put all this money behind it. Right. So it was an expensive film. He it earned credit because, um, you know, Seven Samurai obviously was incredibly popular. But uh, I do wonder, like, if the relative financial lack of financial success here led him to create Hidden Fortress, which was apparently his most popular film in Japan when it was first released. It's not answering your comment, though. I think it's very interesting <laughs> that he's taking the time to really uh, dwell on on the depths of Japanese society and literally go into the to, to explore the bottom levels of Japanese society as uh, part of his uh, obsessions, his themes that he keeps coming back to. It's almost as if he can't prevent himself from really exploring this space. Um, do you think do you think that doing it by setting by taking the play and setting it hundreds of years in the past gives him a kind of a buy to do that? I think it has to. Straight, Straight Dog was set in contemporary Japan, right? So that kind of makes I, it on the nose. I think it has to, and also the fact that it's um, a literary adaptation gives yeah. him more leeway as well. Right. My own, I don't know much about what the state is of Japanese filmmaking in 1957, but I think that was during their golden period too when they were creating dozens, if not hundreds of movies a year. Right. So it also gives them a bit of cover. Although, again, this is really an expensive film. I think one of the other things that Lower Depths offers that The Idiot doesn't, which is, again, such a claustrophobic film and very monotonal, uh, is there's such great variety in this film, variety mm -hmm. in, in every way possible. You know, variety of human life, of of performative uh, of, of performances, um, of of tone um the mise-en-scene is is it consistent but it's so um it's so how, how shall i put it it's virtuosic without being showy mm -hmm. yeah if you will yeah so it doesn't draw i mean that's one of the wonderful things about kurosawa and i think dominic you mentioned this in a prior podcast but he can make a scene which has all of those sort of like it, it it should be perceived by the viewer as being intentionally cinematic. Yeah. Because it has all of those components of like, of, of a kind of forced or art, art, artisanal quality to it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> For lack of a better word. Um, and yet it doesn't, it's, it's, it's breathtaking. You know, it's breathtaking as you're watching it and yet you're not, thinking to yourself oh well that's really showy you know or that's really self-conscious yeah kurosawa is this great paradoxical master of um invisible showiness <laughs> <laughs> right right and and the other the other aspect of this film that i just found so refreshing is that there's there's a lot of comedy there's a lot of you know i mean at the same time there's like you know existential horror there's also this great um levity 
uh, uh, to it as well, which you wouldn't he expect feels, from a film about people living in, you know, amongst the refuse. And, and he with the feels like it is a comedy. He has yeah. he stated it was a comedy to him. Oh, he did? Yes. Okay. <laughs> That's kind of a tough sell. I don't know that you can really uh, call it a comedy when one of the characters hangs himself. Uh-huh. <laughs> but he has, well, he certainly believed in the comedic aspects of it. That's something. That's a, something the commentator yeah, calls comment. yeah, out yeah. a lot on the yeah. uh, Criterion disc. Whose name escapes me now, but he's the he's the uh, biographer. Of course, I was biographer. Mm-hmm. Um, he says this film was is an artistic success, but it was unliked at the time. And he said he lists four reasons why he feels it was unliked, which I thought are, are increasingly interesting. It's too controlled from a directional standpoint, too kind of uh, too hard to really uh, get any air in. It's very tightly, tightly controlled. It's too pessimistic, he says. It's too theatrical. And then the most interesting term he uses, he believes it's too perfect. And by perfect, he means everything is perfectly aligned in the way Kurosawa wanted it to be to the point where I think he believes it got sterile. Uh, do do kids listen to this podcast? No. Well, then fuck that. He's wrong. <laughs> He's wrong he... on every single point. <laughs> He's implying he feels like it's over, overly planned, overly rehearsed. And I don't think that's true at all. No, it's 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 a kind of criticism I can see people making of Kurosawa because, I mean, I see Kurosawa as a highly meticulous and you know plan oriented filmmaker myself. But to me, that isn't that's the strength, not the weakness. Because as right. you were saying just a few minutes ago, um, I think that you you have to really be watching the, these films as a cinephile to recognize how that is being achieved. Because mm-hmm. he's, yeah, I, you know, I, I was, I was kind of tongue in cheek when I said the master of, you know, uh, unshowy showiness or whatever it was that I said, but it's true, right? I mean, I can't sit through a Brian De Palma film without being driven nuts by how much he's trying to show off, you know. Uh, Kurosawa, I, I can see him doing a lot of the exact same kind of techniques, but it always, it always serves the film as opposed to the look what I can do, yes. right? Yeah. Um, for me, anyway. Okay, I want to I want to ask about that because there's one scene in there. Uh, we can go back to my point that I was originally making. There's a couple <laughs> scenes in this film that are a little showy. Mm-hmm. There's the scene about 15 seconds long, where we just get leaves blowing around mm-hmm. after uh, the characters all step off stage, and uh, I believe it's when uh, what's his name the 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 uh, the wife is about to die or has died. Mm-hmm. And we just get this kind of moment where we're like, we're basically asked to contemplate what's happening. Yeah. And um, I found that to be a little showy. Also, the scenes when they're outside, everyone's hanging out. And there's a guy sitting on top Up of the, on the wall. wall. Yeah, yeah. Right. And you got this whole sequence that plays through there t- later on, too, where you've got, uh, they're outside and you've got people poking their heads through the window and the diagonals of the stuff outside, people on either side of it are meant to see people, you know, symbolically on either side of the various um the the belief systems as well as the physical world. It actually felt a little showy to me. A little uncharacteristically showy to me. 
yeah, I can't really disagree with, you know, your, 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 your point there. They are. Um, but I mean, again, those are all the kinds of things that Kurosawa does over and over again. Right. I mean, I always think of the, the final shot and run. Yeah. Uh, of, of, uh, Suramaru, uh, silhouetted against the, uh, the landscape and he's, he's a, on, uh, standing on top of the ruins. Mm-hmm. And uh, just what an absolutely perfect ending that was. Perfect final shot to a film. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe one of the most perfect. And I think to myself, uh, well, how else would he have done it? How else could he have done it? And, and, and Dominic, you mentioned uh, uh, unshowy showiness. Yeah, and, and I think that that's whenever I see uh, something like that, which is like a moment of cinematic perfection, I think to myself, how else could he have possibly filmed that? Now, I can watch a any other work by any other filmmaker. I can watch like uh, I'll use one example, uh, The Hateful Eight by Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. And there's about 600 shots in that movie that I would have done differently. Yeah. <laughs> You know, um, <laughs> it, 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 to the point that it's maddening. And uh, <laughs> I watch a Kurosawa film or Hitchcock, mm-hmm. you know, to use another yeah. example, who's, who's also yeah. absolutely extraordinary at doing exactly the right thing in the most meticulous way and doing it. It's totally showy, but it's it's intoxicating and, and, and you can't okay. take your eyes off. I read an interesting comment about Hitchcock once where that he, he knew so so exactly what was happening that he didn't even need to see the rushes to know if they got the shot or not. He right. could just tell from where the camera was whether whether they got it or not. I thought that's amazing. So I guess my, my response to that is, you know, yes, they're they're showy moments or whatever, or or what that critic was saying about lower depths being too perfect, whatever the fuck that means. Yeah. Um you know, I mean, look at Rear Window. That has yeah. to be one of the most cinematically composed films ever made. And it's oh, also in a very closed set. Yeah. But it's also completely uh, um, captivating. You, completely you captivating. cannot take your eyes off that movie from start to finish. And nothing in, in the way that Hitchcock filmed that movie gets in your way. And yet it's so, you know, it's so purposefully filmed. Yeah, you know, I think that's just pure artistry. Yeah. To go back to, you know, what Jason was saying, I think that to some extent that's going to be a personal response. I mean, if it gets in your way, it gets in your way, right? Right. If if you're watching the film and you find yourself thinking, oh, that, that, you know, that's, (laughs) what a, what a clever shot as opposed to, um, oh, that, 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 you know, that, that's, that's making me feel the way the film wants me to feel then, you know, for you, it gets in the way, right? Um, and I I think, you know, what I'm saying, I think what you're saying is for us, those moments don't seem to, right? Uh, but I think it's a valid response, right? You know, it's, because um, I mean, they I'm are. Not, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to um, yeah. argue against it, whether or not Jason's response to shots was valid or not. Yeah. But I, I can only argue from the standpoint of uh, how how else, could he have done it? How, how else? You know, I, mean, I guess that's the question I ask myself when I see something. It's a good point. 
that maybe I, 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 I don't want to say like I don't appreciate Kurosawa's beauty, yeah. right? You you mentioned the final scene curse in Ron, and I actually just just googled Ron, and I'm looking at a dozen shots on the first screen here that are stunning. Yeah, right. And I think of Throne of Blood, and I think of a dozen shots that are stunning, as we talked about the the yeah. scene of the forest moving, for example. Oh yeah. Right, yeah. and the the scene of the force moving in 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 uh, Throne of Blood is a very showy scene, <laughs> but it fits the story so well, right? It right. makes the it gives the story almost a mythic depth to it. So yeah, I'm not I'm not personally complaining about those scenes. I'm just saying uh, he's not a straight up and down filmmaker either. He is he is adding his own flair. To scenes he really wants to emphasize in a way that yeah. give him raw power. I'm wondering if that's the kind of thing that whoever you were talking about, the, the commentator was meaning when he's saying it's too perfect, is that it Kurosawa doesn't leave room for the happy accident. Um, well, that's certainly true. Or, that's certainly or, what I was getting you know, at in part. The, yeah. the intuitive moment. It, it's um and I I mean I do I you know, I once you see it, you can't unsee it, right? You know. Once you recognize, oh yeah, that is super choreographed, um, then it's there. But uh, I always, you know, and I, I inevitably now, even if I'm watching a Kurosawa album I haven't seen before, I'm seeing those things now, right? Um, but uh, they, and you know, if if you're if you if you you know if you have a more sort of I don't know, uh, Robert Altman kind of sensitivity, uh, then then maybe Kurosawa just seems uh, un unendurably sterile because there's just no room in there for uh for something just to happen or, or you know david lynch same kind of thing right you know oh there was an accident let's keep it <laughs> like oh, yeah. literally yeah. an accident he actually I, did keep a lot of accidents oh yeah i know yeah i think that's a reductivist <laughs> way of looking at film too right because yeah. you yeah. know i'm a yeah. i'm i'm the biggest altman fan yeah, it seems. And, it felt like and I'm a, also a big Kurosawa fan because they, I enjoy the artfulness of the work they're creating. Jason, you you just reviewed 2001. I, I haven't listened to your to your review yet, but there's a film that is probably as composed as a film can possibly be. Yeah, but nothing in that film I would argue is extraneous or showy for the sake of showy. I think it, everything in that film serves some sort of instrumental function to the narrative in it, fact, it may have elements yeah. that are quote unquote cinematic you know like when he overlays blue danube waltz for example when the space station is spinning around in space that sort of thing and that's sort of in in a way that's kind of like a sly wink right on the part of kurosawa uh, of kubrick to the to the audience but everything in that film as as composed as it is and as artificial as it seems um serves serves the picture serves it, the storyline completely yeah well that's that's a great analogy to make because it struck me this time watching 2001 and like you guys i've watched it many times over the years is 2001 is also this interesting postmodern approach to science fiction deliberately commenting on the science fiction that's come before and the cheesiness of it right instead of theremin we get a classic waltz right instead of uh these space aliens who just look dorky and weird we get these aliens that are unknowable mm -hmm. 
instead of having you know Klaatu Barado Nikto, we have a monolith that we have no idea how to interpret. And so right. Kubrick's in dialogue with old science fiction at the same time is creating this amazing work of art. So mm -hmm. it's this fascinating like multi-level approach he takes to things. Yeah. And that okay, so I'm gonna be really pretentious and say that's actually one thing I don't quite get as much as I want to in Kurosawa's films is the dialogue he's having with the Japanese film society of the time and the tropes that he's working in and the other uh details, right? We've now reviewed 25 of his films together and we have some idea on that. Um we've watched, you know, you and I Eric have watched a number of other Japanese directors and I know you're a big fan, but there's still that that interesting little gap where we're not getting the total pomo kind of feel right. that we could get. Yeah. Right. I'm useless on that because I love Kurosawa, but beyond Kurosawa, my main knowledge of Japanese cinema is uh is the monster movies. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we've gone. I've seen the minutes, occasional so. other classic, but you know, it's mostly the monster movies. <laughs> So, so how would how would you guys and and I don't mean to hijack the podcast, Jason, but yeah. we're getting a little late on time. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking the same yeah. thing. Um, how how would how would you guys uh, uh, rate uh, the the lower depths and the idiot in in Kurosawa's oeuvre? Well, for me, and keeping in mind that there are still a handful that I haven't seen, um, I would I would put um, the idiot down basically where I put the quiet duel, which is, it's perfectly fine, but it's, it's, it's my, from my point of view, it's minor Kurosawa. Um, lower depths, I certainly wouldn't put it as high as, you know, Samurai or Hidden Fortress or Yojimbo or Ikiru, but certainly, you know, um, in the, in the upper half of the pack. So I have, um, I have the idiot as sixth from the bottom. I should say, by the way, I've now seen all but Rhapsody in August, which I'm looking planning to watch tonight. So I've watched thirty of his thirty of the thirty-one films that are still existent, plus the one that. Um, well, actually, I think it's a little higher than that. After our conversation, uh, I'll put it. I'd put it. Yeah, about tenth from the bottom. It's better. It's a better film than. Sanchiro Sugata, probably a better film than Quiet Duel, though I have bonded the Quiet Duel. Uh, lower depths. This is a to me the problem is that his the top half of his list is so tightly yeah stacked. It's, yeah, it's hard to right. it's hard to worm a new one in there. Fifteenth <laughs> on my list is Sanjuro, and for any other director, practically that would be like number two or number three yeah. in terms of greatness uh i'd put it about the same level as a film like kage musha mm. yeah, yeah seems fair enough yeah i guess that's where i would end up putting it i tend to i tend to split kurosawa into three periods mm -hmm. early middle and late mm -hmm. and there's fantastic films in each of the periods obviously the middle period is is <laughs> consistently his finest body of work although the late period i mean there is some absolutely uh classic films in there i mean particularly ron but um so i can't I, I can only sort of compare it within the parameters of that specific period 
And so lower depths, I would I would really uh, and the idiot falls within that same period. <laughs> Oddly enough, I would put the idiot absolutely last amongst the films from his middle period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I. It, it's not a bad film, but it just comparatively speaking. Yeah. Um, it's it's just not my. It, it, it doesn't have the same. A, a lot of the a lot of the uh, ingredients are there for a great Kurosawa film, but it just doesn't come together. And then, of course, there's that missing 100 minutes, which may, as Dominic says, it may make the film better. It may make it demonstrably worse. <laughs> we, we'll never know. Um, lower depths. Um, I would I would put that just just above the idiot <laughs> no really yeah. it's, a fan, it's a fantastic film don't get me wrong i, I think it's a classic i, I think it's it, it has a lot um to to offer but i look at all the other films from that period and i mean we're talking rashomon akiru seven samurai live in fear throne of blood hidden fortress bad sleep well yojimbo sanjuro high and low and Redbeard. yeah i mean I, I just I can't put it ahead of any of those films. No, no, you can't. I I yeah. just can't. I can't so, say it's even better than Redbeard, which no, well might be, the, it, well, might be the the lowest of of that stack. It's still like so much more. There's so much more power to that film. Uh, Redbeard, I have a, a a curious fondness for. I, I rate that fairly high in my okay among his work, but. Nevertheless, as much as I enjoyed the film, as much as I appreciate it, as much as I think it's a masterpiece, I mean, I guess that's, you know, kudos to Kurosawa. Um, <laughs> you've got uh, how many masterpieces ahead of it from that, that same period. So um, it's, a, it's a very good film, but um, probably not one that I would revisit fairly frequently. I mean, there are I ended up, I think I told you, Jason, I ended up buying a DVD copy of I Live in Fear. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'd probably be more likely to watch that film, which is just like, you know, uh, kind of like a really heavy film to watch. But Mifune's Mifune's performance in that is just so amazingly captivating. It's beyond words, just how great of an actor he is. And I don't think... And I think, Jason, you mentioned this earlier, this is an ensemble piece. I don't think he's given enough real screen time or real um, meat with this character. So I think yeah. there's some definite missed opportunities here. But for the most part, it's a fantastic film. Uh, start to finish, uh, The Idiot. I think Kurosawa was a little bit of an idiot when he made that movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, genius doesn't always, you know, that's the thing about genius is it's in, it's inconsistent, you know. Yep. Um, well, I said it before. He directed five, six, seven five star films. So, genius. Uh, he <laughs> he's got plenty of leeway, as far as I'm concerned. Right. Thank you, guys. Thank you. As, as usual, a great conversation. Pleasure as always.